Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. We all know about the famous mounds in Cahokia. Even if we don't know much, these man-made earthworks remind us that this now remote area in Illinois was once one of the biggest cities in the entire world. But did you know that St. Louis was also once home to its own elaborate mounds? The civilization that built them also flourished centuries before the arrival of European settlers. Here to discuss these ancient earthworks is Patricia Cleary. She is a professor of history at California State University and a 2017 fellow with the Center for Missouri's Studies. Cleary's visit is part of the Prim Lecture Series sponsored by the University of Missouri-St. Louis. She'll be speaking at the Missouri History Museum tonight. Patricia Cleary, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Sarah. What was your first introduction to the ancient mounds of the St. Louis region? Give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Patricia Cleary, tell us about these mounds. What do we know about the ones that were in what is today St. Louis? We actually know a lot thanks to the work of archaeologists and native scholars and oral traditions among various indigenous cultures. There were about 27 of them in what's today downtown St. Louis, only one of which survives, Sugarloaf Mound, which is right off Highway 55 at the, I think it's 4500 South Broadway exit. And that's the only one that's still standing. What happened to the others? They, they seem, the Cahokia ones, they seem so huge. It's hard to imagine them just going away. I know. And it, it's very difficult for us today. And in fact, most people, when they hear that I'm working on a study of the St. Louis mounds, they say, as if gently to correct me, you mean Cahokia mounds? And I say, no, the ones in St. Louis. What happened is that these mounds, which were constructed in the 11th century and thereafter around a very formal plaza with a symmetrical lining up of mounds and some ones that were really enormous, including one the size of a football field. They were gradually encroached by St. Louis as it spread northward along the river. So the, the original colonial settlement founded in 1764 was three streets deep and about a dozen blocks wide, and it gradually moved north so that by the 1830s, the mounds were being encroached, and they were being repurposed for use as reservoirs and sites for homes, and one even had a a restaurant on top of it where uh, pleasure goers would go to see a view of the Mississippi. Let's and, go to the mound. Yes, and, and eat. And there was even a, an early effort to encircle them in some sort of a park area and to preserve them and set them apart. But that didn't happen. Property owners were unwilling to sell them at a bargain bottom pl- price to developers for a park, and they fell to the developer's axe and shovel. So it was basically a matter of economics that we don't have them here today. Yes, but there were people early in the 1800s who saw them as valuable and historic, so that the reputation of St. Louis was something that extended across the Atlantic, and European travelers and tourists and artists came to St. Louis to see the ancient mounds. And they were recognized as ancient at the time, although there were some people who up through the 1870s and beyond continued to argue that they were natural, that they were sandbars or other natural formations that had accumulated millennia before when the Mississippi was in a different place. Why do you think people were trying to make that argument? Was it that they were so impressive they couldn't fathom the idea that that men would make these? Or was there more to it? Well, there certainly was more to it because there were people who 
saw the ancient mounds as culturally problematic because of who constructed them. They wondered who were the mound builders, and there were lots of competing arguments about the identity of the mound builders in the 1800s. Some people thought that the Welsh might have built them. The Welsh? Yes, that the Welsh had come to America centuries before, had made their way all the way up the Missouri River. In fact, there was a Welsh explorer in the 1790s who went searching for Welsh speakers in the far northwest reaches of the Missouri River, or the lost people of Atlantis. And very few people in the 19th century, very few white Americans, I should say, in the 19th century, were willing to countenance the idea that the ancestors of contemporary Indians in the 1800s could have possibly built the mounds, because they saw and were invested in seeing contemporary Indians as uncivilized they didn't want to believe they were capable of doing something that right. was this massive. Right. So instead, they turned to these elaborate theories. I mean, yeah, and some of which are pretty ridiculous. I mean, this idea of, of the Welsh is this, did the Welsh do similar things in Wales? Is that what got it, no. that started? Okay. No. This is no, just no. someone having some Welsh yeah. pride. Yes. Yes. There were, and there were lots of theories like that. A lost tribe of Israel, the Phoenicians, anyone other than the descendants of ancient Indians. So to ask kind of a dumb question here, how do we know for a fact that this was Occam's razor? It really was the Native Americans who'd built these. Well, if the mounds in St. Louis were not built by ancient Americans, neither were the hundreds of thousands of mounds that extended across the whole eastern half of the United States. There are earthwork mounds everywhere from um, a little bit west of the Mississippi, all the way to the Atlantic coast. And the shape of them, some of them were truncated pyramids, some of them were round. It's not dissimilar from the kind of stone monuments that you see built in Mesoamerica. So at Teotihuacan and Chichen Itza and other places in Mexico, indigenous peoples there built structures that were very similar astronomically sophisticated, important for seasonal planting, for religious meanings. They're throughout the Americas. The ones in North America, north of Mexico, are made of dirt. What do we know about the purpose of these mounds? They had many purposes. Some of them were clearly ceremonial that might have had elaborate temples on the top so that Monk's Mound in Cahokia had a structure that was about 5,000 square feet on the top. And the members of the ruling religious families, the chiefs, were often thought of as semi-divine figures. So there were ones that were temple mounds, there were others that were funerary mounds, and the biggest mound in St. Louis was one like that that had the remains of between two and three dozen people interred within it, off covered from shoulders to knees with beads from the Atlantic or the Gulf or the Great Lakes. And then there were others that may have been residential or defensive. We're hearing from a number of our listeners. It's exciting to see some mound excitement out there. Um, we've got a very specific question. I hope I'm not putting you on the spot by asking this, but Jackie Lewis Harris on Twitter says that the St. Louis Art Museum was built on a deconstructed mound. Do you know if that's right? Right. So there were 16 mounds in Forest Park. Uh, half of the group was near where the, I guess it's the south wing of the museum is, and the other half were at the base, where the Grand Basin is. And those were there until just before the 1904 World's Fair. And they were documented and photographed, and the largest of them was over 50 feet in diameter. 
Wow. So our listener, actually, they have that right. Um, Stuart on Twitter also asks, does anyone have a reliable mound map? I've been searching for one for forever. Patricia Cleary, are there resources out there that would show where each of these maps, mounds, each of these mounds were? Well, the map that was done in St. Louis in 1819 as part of a scientific expedition is probably the best one for the St. Louis group. And there are a number of archaeologists who've been working on the mounds in Cahokia and East St. Louis, which also had about 50 mounds, and the St. Louis group. There are some documents in the Missouri Historical Society that include a lot of information about mounds, but they're not very geographically precise. And there are still mounds that are existence in St. Louis County. There's one in Chesterfield, and there was one that was destroyed not too long ago, I think, in Fenton for a Walmart. And the they stand- destroyed one for a Walmart? And, and, there, and where the Stanmusial Bridge footings are on the Illinois side, there was a burial mound discovered there that's been largely preserved. So I have to admit, I'm kind of shocked. Maybe I'm ignorant. But it's shocking that this destruction is happening recently enough that a Walmart might be involved in this. On one hand, you know, we're all in awe of these Egyptian pyramids and and things like that. On the other hand, we've got this example much closer to home that it seems like even in recent years, people were willing to just mow over. Why do you think the reason for that is? I think people have a hard time seeing the connections between the treatment of history and the treatment of people in the present. And they also think about improvement and progress as being more important than preservation of the past. And that's been the case, not just in St. Louis, but across the country and much of the world where ancient monuments of different cultures fall to development very Mm. quickly. And there's legislation that's supposed to stop that from happening. NAGPRA legislation for Native American graves Protection and Repatriation Act passed in 1990 is supposed to stop construction and involve archaeologists and indigenous scholars and representatives when human remains or cultural artifacts are discovered. So there's at least some laws on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned earlier the Sugarloaf Mound, which is the sole remaining one in city limits, and people pass by it every day on I-55. What is the state of that site today? I drove by it this morning just to check to see how it looked. And the Osage Nation, which is headquartered in Oklahoma, purchased the top house on that mound in 2009. And in 2017, with a company that was equipped to do so, they removed that house. Their long-term plan is to establish an interpretive center there. There are still two other houses on lower levels of the mound. The top of Sugarloaf is now surrounded by a chain link fence, and it's overgrown with trees and shrubs. There's nothing to indicate if you didn't know it was there. It's at about, I think, 4400 Ohio is the location that it is a mound. If you look at it, you would think, well, that doesn't look like a hill. Yeah, it it looks a little bit off or different No, it looks quite different. Okay. Um, We did hear from one of our listeners, Will Phillips. He sent us an email about that very mound. He writes, as a member of the Osage Nation living here in St. Louis, I would be interested in your guests' thoughts about the purchase of Sugarloaf Mound by the Osages and any other ongoing preservation or research work involving the cooperation of the Osages or other tribes in the region. Yeah, and so the Osage and the uh, tribal representatives thereof are involved very much in that preservation movement. And Dr. Andrea Hunter, who's an archaeologist, 
Forest and a member of the Osage Nation has been at work on that and other sites for years. What's going on right now that may be helpful for long-term preservation of Osage excuse me, of Sugarloaf Mound, is that there is bipartisan legislation that was introduced by two members of Congress from Illinois to make Cahokia Mounds, several other sites in Illinois, and Sugarloaf Mound here in St. Louis, part of a new national historic park. And that was introduced in Congress in July. And so there's now an effort in in Congress. This would not just deal with the Cahokia Mound. It would also loop in the one in St. Louis. Right. And what would that mean? Would it have extra special protections at that point it becomes a a national monument? I don't know exactly what protections kick in if an area has a National Historic Park designation. It would certainly be helpful in terms of recognition. One would hope in terms of fundraising. As I said, there are still two houses on lower levels of the mound that would be nice to have removed so that the whole area could be preserved intact. It's a sacred site. And you'd think if if they're being able to get some sort of national park designation, they could get those houses out of there. Yes. Uh, We're talking with Patricia Cleary. She's a professor of history at California State University, a 2017 fellow with the Center for Missouri Studies. Patricia, you're currently working on a book that's going to be titled Mound City, the place of the Indian past and present in St. Louis. That's also the title of your talk tonight at the Missouri History Museum. How would you describe the overall focus of that project? The focus of the project is to explore and examine both the history of the mounds during the period of their construction, for which I am entirely relying on the work of archaeologists and anthropologists, their abandonment by 1400, and then their afterlife, what happened during the period that European colonists and then Americans were settled in this area, how and why and when they destroyed them, and then how and why and when they were commemorated, so that the Mound City nickname, in fact, became much more popular, as you can tell from newspaper records and other business records, after 1869 when the last of the of the big mounds was destroyed. And then... How has that continued into the 20th century with different kinds of commemorations and forgetting? Uh, why do you think that Cahokia was able to be preserved in such a good state and the St. Louis Mounds fell to what they fell to? Well, because the Cahokia village area certainly didn't have the all-important river location, riverfront location with steamboats and then the railroad. St. Louis grew from a city of about 1,000 people to over 800,000 over the course of the 1800s. And so the rapid economic growth and development that took place here didn't take place in Cahokia. A lot of mounds were plowed over by farmers, but the area itself did not become urban. And so thus the mounds in East St. Louis were destroyed because that too had rapid urban growth. That city really thrived. Yeah. Uh, Chelsea on Twitter writes, I grew up going to Angel Mounds in southern Indiana, which I believe was a settlement by the Mississippi tribe from the city of Cahokia. It's a beautiful preservation. My parents' Indiana house was also built near a mound. And we found a lot of pottery and arrowheads during construction. What do we know about why uh, St. Louis Mounds ended up being abandoned. You'd mentioned that was part of the book. There are many theories about that. And again, on that area, I'm summarizing and synthesizing what a lot of very good scholars have written about. And one of the most persuasive theories has to do with environmental crises, changing weather patterns, pollution of local water resources, and inability of the farmland surrounding Cahokia to 
uh, support the population because it, it had from anywhere from about 10,000 people living right in it to 30,000 in a larger metropolitan area of greater Cahokia. And then there may have been conflicts emerging. There are palisades that were constructed around Cahokia repeatedly for defensive purposes. Does it feel kind of eerie to know that here was this thriving civilization and now it's gone? Could we be facing a similar fate? That's a very good question. I'm not a future prognosticator as a historian, but one does wonder. <laughs> Patricia Cleary, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Patricia's talk on Mound City, the place of the Indian past and the present in St. Louis, that's tonight at 7 p.m. at the Missouri History Museum's Lee Auditorium. That's at 5700 Lindell Boulevard. Um, we also want to remind you about the St. Louis on the Air podcast. We know that sometimes you can't listen to the show when it's airing at noon or when it rebroadcasts at 7 p.m. You can get the podcast of this show by going to our website at stlpublicradio.org, where you can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.